0: So welcome everyone to another episode of Live From My Drum Room, also the Modern Drummer Podcast. It's a pleasure to see you all today, and I'm very excited to welcome today's guest. I think we are guaranteed to break the internet today with with this young man. Please welcome Matt Chamberlain to the podcast.
1: Matt! Hey! What's
0: up? <laughs> it's good to see you, brother. Uh, you, um, you getting a little practice time in too. That's good. Good to see yeah. that.
1: Trying to work off that uh, iced coffee I just had. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I wish I recorded our our you know, our sound check cuz that was some of the funniest stuff. You know, just that's usually how it goes, but anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you, man. You Thank sure. you for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm I'm a little
1: nervous to tell you the truth.
0: Oh, come on. You're not nervous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually talk. I usually (laughs) do stuff with these things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You let, you let those do the talking. I got to tell you, I'm all right. Total full disclosure. I'm, I'm more nervous today than I think I've been on one of these in a long time because, um, you know, the response to, to having you today has been unbelievable. Not surprisingly, so many people, are watching right now. And, and I, you know, I'm so psyched to have you. I, I started looking at all these things that I wanted to talk about. And it, it's like one thing is like peeling the layers off an onion, Matt. Like one thing led to, it's like, you've played with so many people. It's crazy. It's crazy.
1: I don't know what happened.
0: <laughs> I know what happened. I know what happened. <laughs> Here
1: I am. I don't know. The mystery. It's
0: great to have. It's great to have you. And I have to tell you this, a lot of your friends are watching. Um, the young and handsome David Aberziz is watching right now. Okay. And um, yeah, and he, he, asked, he has a, he had a comment that I'll share with you later on, but he wanted, wanted me to ask you about um, something in anyway, but I'm going to just jump in if that's okay with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. I'm going to just head first.
1: I'm ready for it. Whatever it is. Bring it on. All up. right, man. <laughs>
0: well, first of all, what an incredible career i mean i i I just said this a second ago but looking at everything that you've done in the last 30 almost 35 years 30 something years and and like I said you're you're it's like you're really almost kind of just getting started and, and you know to I know that's a little bit of a um not an exaggeration but I mean you you still have you still have a lot more rim shots left in you
1: I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, man. Yeah.
0: Um, Did you, when you, when you were, and you went to North Texas State, I, I know. Um, I tried. for Yeah, for a little <laughs> while. I know you.
1: <laughs> like a semester and a half. Yeah. I made it through a semester and a half.
0: That's all. Okay. I thought it was longer than that. I thought it was, a, I thought it was at least a couple semesters.
1: No, uh, like semester. halfway through the second semester, I, I kind of ran out of money. Because I spent all my grant money on drum gear, <laughs> 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 and, and so I moved into da- into Dallas because you know um, North Texas is north about forty minutes north of Dallas, so yeah, I moved into this area of Dallas called Deep Ellum, which at the time was pretty sketch. And there were a couple clubs that were starting to open up, and there was like a little music scene going on, and it was really affordable, so yeah i just moved down there and just started playing music and um i think that time period was like the most um formative period for me as far as just learning and seeing music and being exposed to music because you know bands were always touring through that part of town and playing the little clubs that were there and so being right out of college or basic well i wasn't really in college i guess like a semester out of college (laughs) <laughs> um being in that mentality and then like going to a club and seeing bad brains or the butthole surfers or there was a actually there was an, another club in Fort Worth called caravan of Dreams that used to have tons of jazz um things. It was like part of the jazz circuit in the US. And I got to see like Art Blakey and Tony Williams and Man. um Jack D. Jeanette Ronald Shan Jackson, you know like Burnett Coleman played there a lot. Um so that was a good time to be in Dallas, you know, that yeah. like late '80s, like '87, '88.
0: And you were just like 20, right? 20, 21 years old.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So that, I mean, yeah. seeing, you know, going going and seeing Ornette Coleman and then seeing Bad Brains, and then you know Reverend Horton Heat's playing down the street every Monday night at his club. It was just like, what? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Everything I know. But-
1: brought a of free jazz. To- <laughs> rock
0: what yeah what a great time you know to 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 be around music to be around these bands and you know be exposed to all that music i should say and yeah it's so so important in our formative years you know like at that point in your life that's that's i don't want to say it's better than an education in north texas but it's it's along that same level of you know what you're what you can experience
1: yeah yeah well and you know, there were still all my friends from North Texas, so incredible musicians that just lived in the area. So everybody was always into playing. So I feel I feel like that was probably more educational for me, just jamming with people, you know, like getting together and just playing. Yeah. I mean, obviously I still had all my drum books and I was able to like shed on stuff whenever I had time, but um it was the playing that really Yeah. It gets you kind of in a thing, you know, and then being in bands and dealing with that whole dynamic of, you know, the whole other thing,
0: (laughs) whole other thing. Exactly. So, so jumping back. And it's funny, you mentioned when we were offline that you came up to DW, you think maybe in 1988 or maybe 89 and we, we may have, yeah, we may have met in 88, which is kind of what, It wouldn't surprise, it would kind of blow my mind, but then again, it wouldn't because I'd go, geez, you know, like that's.
1: Yeah, because I remember we were still on tour with Edie Brickell like halfway through that year and I was like, I need to get a DW kit because I remember we were playing some gig in like, it was like Ruskilda Festival or something, you know, out in Europe somewhere and the opening band, the drummer had a DW kit and I was like, wow, these drums sound so good. They sound so like, uh, they had this like, Attack to them, this really cool like mapley thing. I, mm-hmm. I thought I could, you know, like those are the only words I could think of right now to describe it. But it just felt very uh, immediate. It wasn't as mushy sounding as the. I, I forgot what I had. I had like a superstar or something from from there, yeah. like that. And so I called DW up. You know, went on went you know, like looked in Modern Drummer magazine, saw the little ad. You know, Newberry Park. <laughs> and I think we town and I went out there and I remember like John Good took me up into like a, it was like an attic and there were just all these shells and he was showing me how there was like notes stamped on the, the shells, but that was like 88. Yeah. 80, maybe the end of yeah. the day.
0: That's wild, man. You that's, might've been yeah, that, there. Oh, I mean, I might've been there and, and, and that's what we did too. I mean, like John would, you know, such a small operation at that point that he'd bring people in and take them for a tour and he'd let them pick the shells like, you know, these, and that's probably what you did. And, you know, you matched your shells so that you had the best, you know, you're going to have drums that will tune uh-huh. theoretically easier and, and more friendly um, with each other. And yeah.
1: yeah. And, that, and that, <clears throat> I had like the little eight inch, I had like a little eight, 10, 12, maybe a 16 with a rack, you know, and the splash symbols and the, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was obsessed with Manu Kache and Stuart Copeland, so you know, I had a yeah, yeah. rig, you know, and I still, yeah. but I'm still playing. all right. Well, I want to, I want to, big, speaking of well, go Manu, ahead. that new Peter Gabriel, those new Peter Gabriel songs that are out, yeah, so great. I, I love hearing Manu play. Okay, that's the end of Manu.
0: No, me too. <laughs> I, I, I love, I love his playing, absolutely. And I was just going to say a couple of quick things, all right, your drums sounded so great on the Grammys a couple of weeks ago, I guess almost a month ago now, but um, you know, and you were talking about Mike Clink, who, who was the front of house guy or he was the mixer for the, for the
1: TV feed, I should say. Yeah. yeah. He was out there in the, in the truck doing the broadcast mix. Yeah.
0: yeah. What a great sound. If, if Mike happens to see this kudos, I, I bow to you, sir. Like, you know, I, I, I knew his name as you say, as a, as a producer, but yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. He, he did a great job. And those drum I mean those recording custom drums, those are pretty great. I mean, I'm with the you know, I've been with Yamaha now for about coming up on five years. And um Greg Crane, great Greg Crane,
0: <laughs> yes, gave, yes,
1: sent, sent me these um recording customs, and I was like blown away. They just sound so great. I mean, of course they sound great. They're Yamaha recording customs. And yeah. um, he got he got me the kit with the 24 you know, 12, 13, 16, 18, and it's a monster. I love it. It's
0: so much fun to play. They, you know, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, um, you know, they're Yamaha recording customs. Of course they sound great. They always do. But there was like some mojo to them that night. Even like, maybe it was the way Mike mixed them really, really hot. I mean, really mixed them well into the mix. Like you could, you were really heard. Um, the toms sounded incredible. You know, a couple of times when you did these, big fills in the toms like you heard every note so clearly you know really they spoke so well yeah yeah man yeah we no never, i mean it was
1: bitter it's hit or miss with those broadcast things because you know those guys have no time to get a mix together and you know there's a million bands and so yeah. and luckily luckily that all worked out that's awesome
0: and you guys you got to have a sound check that day probably right some a quick one maybe or yep yeah yeah. Well, great. And and your symbols, Piste symbols, sounded great. Two thousand twos it looks like mostly.
1: Yeah, that I used all those those new um the two thousand two black labels. What are they what are they called? Big beat?
0: Big beat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those beautiful. are
1: beautiful. Nice. I like
0: those. Yep. Really, really nice. Well, I was gonna I, I was gonna go ahead, sorry.
1: Well, I was just gonna say they're they're nice because they they still have that real nice high-end to them. And they're a little thinner than the regular 2002. So if you play them real light, they still sound you know, beautiful and not too clangy, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They respond. Yeah. They open up quick. Yeah. No, I was just going to jump back for one second and say that the, um, you know, like when you were talking about on tour with Edie and, and that's when I first, you know, discovered who you were back. And I want to say around 89 and the, uh, you know, the video, the, the big video that was on MTV all the time. And, and you were just, you know, a young kid, twenty one, twenty two, 22, playing traditional grip, mm-hmm. but there was obviously, and then I, I feel like it was a matter of a year or not much more, a year or two later, <clears throat> you were in Pearl Jam for a minute, for a little while, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had the Saturday Night Live gig, like you just, you just like took off at that point.
1: Yeah. with Crazy couple of years there. How
0: did the, so how did that how did you go from like what was the transition from going from Edie's gig to Pearl Jam to SNL for example
1: well I mean Edie we all we broke up as a band like we put out the second record and toured for a bit and I think we toured through like the spring and then uh, we called it quits and the producer of the last Edie record, this guy Tony Berg um, um called me up and said, Hey, there's this band in Seattle named Pearl Jam that is doing a tour and they need a drummer to fill in. Um, would you be into it? And you know, this this is before the internet, of course. So that you know, they mailed me a cassette. <laughs> and I was like, sure, I'll go to Seattle and hang out. And <laughs> and so we just did this tour in a van and um it was it was hilarious. It was so fun. It um but they were about to hit the road for like, I don't know, as long as a band does when they put out a new, a new record blow up, yeah. you know? So, and I quit a band that was on the road for, you know, three or four years straight. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go, you know? Um, I, oh, and also at the same time, I got offered to move to New York city and do this SNL gig. And I was like, man, I, I want to go to New York and like, take some drum lessons and just see if I could be a drummer that can play with, play on records and just like, you know, be an independent musician instead of just being in a band. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yep. And
1: we worked hard towards, um, you know, I, when I moved to New York, I got a place and all I did was study. You know, I took drum lessons with tons of different people and studied and practiced and then did the gig and try to go out and absorb as much music as I could in the city. And, um, and that was, that kind of set me off of my path of what I've been doing, which is playing on records and, um, just being involved in different types of music and, you know, the things I, I love doing, which is, is that, you know, yeah. more, more so than just being in a band and just doing that thing, you know? So That's what happened. So I I did that with with Pearl Jam. Then I just moved to New York and got deep into drummer stuff. And was it it was it was different than like going to North Texas or like a a music school where they had like a curriculum and they were obviously trying to mold you into like a music teacher or or, uh, you know, like that that was kind of the deal at college, at least I thought at the time. And so, you know, being able to like be employed in a city like New York and seek out people to study with was awesome. You know, that's great, Matt.
0: Yeah. That's, and who, who were some of the guys you studied with or who, who did you study with in New York? Like,
1: um, the first guy I hooked up with was Danny Gottlieb. All right. Oh, so, he was so sweet and nice and encouraging. And, um, we would just get together and work on hand stuff a couple times. And he turned me on to, um, I think master studies had just come out. That book, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um so I got really into working on my hands through him. And then um, you know, and and the other people that I studied with weren't necessarily drummers. It was like there was a guitar player that lived in Woodstock named D- David Torn, who's this experimental, amazing jazz. I don't even know if he's considered jazz, he's just more creative, interesting. Like, you know, he played with Don Cherry yeah in the 70s but he's done he he did this amazing record with terry bazio and Mick karn called polytown you ever heard okay
0: i've that's how i know his name yes yep absolutely yep
1: and he just kind of opened me up to like uh like sound like sound because he's into he was like one of the earlier guitar players to get into looping live and kind of like sound design and Mm -hmm. um and i got really interested in trying to do that with drums and like making the drum sound different for different parts of a song, you know, like experimenting with with that whole world, you know. Like
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Things. And um so I could, you know, I guess that was kind of a lesson, you know, from him. And sure. And then just playing with people out there, you know, that was a big lesson. And just practicing, yeah. going out and seeing. You know, going, being able to go out and see like Jeff Watts play or, um, you know, any of those guys that were playing at the time was so inspiring, you know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Like a Monday night at, at you know, Smokes or or, or um, any one of the jazz clubs. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or like being back. He, I saw like Jackie Jeanette a handful of times with his trio with Keith Jarrett. And that was like being abducted by an alien. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you sit down and the music starts and then two hours later it's over and you're like, I don't know what <laughs> the but that was incredible. I don't even remember like having to go to the restroom or anything for like two hours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got to say, I saw Jack last time I saw Jack do a clinic uh, at like a, at PAS at a PASIC about 10 years ago. And, you know, like, have you ever done a PASIC, Matt? I think you have, right?
1: I did one around that time back in like 89 or no. Oh, well, okay. No, wait a minute. No, I just went there. I just hung out there. It was in, is it still in Indianapolis? It was in Indianapolis at the time. It
0: It, it, it is now kind of permanently, but it used to move around every couple of years to different places. And
1: that was fun. Yeah. I remember like Louis Belson was yeah. around and he was doing some stuff. And
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Um, Louie. Well, I I was going to say, I saw Jack and, you know, each, each artist has like 50 minutes, less than an hour to do their thing. And a lot of, a lot of times, you know, the format, you can do whatever you want, but a drummer will come out and they'll, they'll open with a solo and then they'll take some questions from the audience and then they'll play a little bit more and they'll demonstrate. And Jack played for like a solid 50 minutes. And it was like, you know, by himself. And it was just what you described. It was this.
1: I saw Movement. that. Movement. I saw that. You did. It was the one where he comes out and he goes, I need you to turn the lights down. He had him turn the lights down and he just played a yeah. formed drum solo for like an hour. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Because that was back when people used to bring their little cassette recorders and record clinics and stuff. And I remember I remember yeah. had that. <laughs> <laughs> that shit. That seriously did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I know. I know. It's, there there are like a few people like Jack that and Tony Williams was like that too. The few things like that that he did where he would just come out and play and he would build from, you know, starting from just like this double stroke role. If you've ever seen any like YouTube yeah. videos of Tony, it's just like for like 10 minutes, you know, and the sweat's kind of pouring off his forehead and he's just, you know, that, well, not, you know.
1: Brian, those guys are masters at improv, uh, so some of the greatest to ever do it. Um, yeah, God. Yeah. Yeah. That was great.
0: And, and it's this whole, you know, uh, tension that they can create too, you know, these, like you say, these masters at this, they can, they can take you emotionally, you know, like to these different places during the, during that hour. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was otherworldly. And, um, there was another thing like it was drum. It was called drum days. Um,
0: Yes. Where's that one at? And that was in, that was in Ohio. That was in um, uh, Columbus, Ohio.
1: And I remember there was one, that was one of the clinics I did. I did a clinic there where I just played with a a bass player, but the person they were honoring that day was Roy Haynes. And um, that was also a life-changing experience because they had his drum kit set up backstage, just kind of like in the hallway. And I remember walking by it and, um, and I saw his symbols and I was like, oh man, he must be playing like some old killer, like, you know, K's or something. And they were, they were just whatever backline symbols. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, man, he's probably going to show up and change the symbol. And he shows up, they put the drum kit on on stage, same symbols. And he goes out there and and everything just sounded so good. He just made everything sound good.
0: Yeah. He (laughs) sounded like Roy. I know.
1: Yeah. It's like that story I heard from Keltner. He told me about going to like one of his first sessions in LA where there were like tons of people on the session. And so you could like sneak into the room and like watch, you know, and, he, and this was, I think, right when he started doing recording sessions. And it was like Earl Palmer or somebody like that was on the session. And so he got there, Keltner got there early and he tapped on the drums and he's like, oh man, they're going to, he's going to tune these drums. They're going to, he's <laughs> And so Kellen are just sitting there waiting and Earl Palmer shows up. He doesn't do anything. He just starts playing and they sound incredible.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: like it's, it's like, I guess they just find the good spots and that's what they do. They play the good parts of the kid or something, but, or they just, yeah. Good somehow. Um,
0: that's, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had Jim on with me a few months ago and, and that was an incredible time, you know, just, I'll send you the link if you ever want to check oh, it I, out. It was I really it
1: the other day. Oh, you did? I love oh, cool. I, any chance I get to talk to him or see an interview, I'm there. He's he's like yeah. Yoda or something of drums. He just, I have a, a an experience with him or had an experience with him where we were at Sunset Sound. I don't know, this was like 15 years ago. And he was in studio three and I was in studio one, whatever they call it. And uh, he came by just to say hi, and I had some kit set up, and he was like, oh, man, let me check these out. And he sat down, and he played them, and I swear he made them sound an octave lower. I don't know what he – I mean, I didn't – obviously, didn't change anything. He just played them, and I was like, these drums sound huge. And then I sat down behind them, and they sounded totally different.
0: Wow. I I totally believe that.
1: (laughs) I know – yeah. The mystery of the universe. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because every drummer is going to hit differently and
0: bring different
1: sounds out of the instrument. I know engineers always talk about that. Like, you know, they can have one kit set up in a studio and have two or three different drummers play it, and it sounds totally different. You know, internal balance, your dynamics, everything is different the way you hit.
0: And then you you add the the Keltner you know, magic to it. And it's like another takes it to another place. Yeah.
1: So it's a mystery of the universe. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So, man, this is so great because I'm learning so much. um, What you said earlier about when you moved to New York and I think did G.E. Smith like kind of invite you to, to be in the band at that time, Was he was the band leader and like he had heard you play, or maybe you guys had done a record together maybe, or.
1: No, you know, he, uh, I met him because, um, one of the tours uh with Edie that we did, we opened up for Bob Dylan.
0: Ah, okay
1: he was in the band at the time and we just hit it off. I yeah. think just he, he would always just crack up at because I was such a hippie back then, you know, like it's <laughs> where holes and like my hair was down to my butt and be like man, you're so hippied out, man. You know, you just <laughs> you <laughs> hang out. And, make fun of me or something. I don't know, but it was was really fun to hang. I mean, and plus he's like an encyclopedia of blues guitar. So that was fun to learn from him. Cause I just didn't, you know, at that time, like back then, you know how it was like, if you wanted to learn about some music, you had to go to the record store or maybe you were lucky enough to see somebody live, like Muddy Waters or, but if you want to get into the blues, you had to have a friend that had, blues records or i just didn't know many people that were into the blues so i mean it's fun to hang and learn that but that's where i met him was he was playing with dylan
0: i see okay that makes sense yeah well so i want to back up just a second too because um i didn't realize I, i looked i saw it either on your either on wikipedia or maybe it was like your your website that you took lessons you studied with david garibaldi as a as a young drummer
1: Yeah. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles here and when I was in high school and actually in junior high, before I even had a full drum kit, I just had like a kick drum and a snare and a hi-hat. And I went and took lessons from David Garibaldi. He was living out here like in Canoga.
0: Canoga Park. Yeah. I lived in Canoga Park. He was my neighbor. Yeah.
1: And I went out there and I remember he was, he gave me the first lesson was the paradiddles where you do the sound levels and accent. And then you displace the accent while you're reading notes with your kick drum over that. And that's what I worked on. And he said, you got to go work with, uh, or you got to take lessons from Murray Spivak. Um, who's the master of hands, you know, about Murray. Yeah,
0: sure. Yes.
1: Like Murray taught Louis Belson and Chad Wackerman and a lot of orchestral percussionists. And, and, um, and he had like a three-year program you went through, you know, and so, but I, I didn't. I only went through a year because I graduated from high school and then went to North Texas. But he yeah. he taught me a, his technique, which was you know the fulcrum is here, on this hand. And um, but he was that's all he did it was just hands. He was like eighty something years old at the time. Yeah, and um, I feel real lucky to have had at least a year with him because it was it was very educational. I wish I would have made made it through the whole program with him, but, um, that was enough for me in my, uh, or at least at the time. But, um, yeah, so I took lessons from him, from, from Garibaldi, from Murray Spivak and then Chuck Flores was also around, you know, about Chuck Flores.
0: I do. Yes. Yeah.
1: I would go to his house and he just had a little practice pads set up and he just had me work out a bass drum, bass drum control doing, um, stuff around the kit more just like getting around uh, uh what do you call it like independence kind of exercise yeah yeah and and so i was kind of bouncing around with those guys for a little bit and then i went to did i mean uh went to greg bissonette's house for a lesson and he was the guy that completely blew my mind because i mean he i think he was like 20 two years old at the time or something, you know, I was 16. And yeah. Yeah. Had a thing set up in his backyard with his drum kit and his brother was living with them. And, um, he taught me how to like read charts, you know, big band charts. And <clears throat> he gave me a sheet of paper with all of these, um, influential records I should check out, you know, like, that's yeah, like three quartets or every, you know, like t- tower power records or, uh, you know, and I was like, wow, I've never heard of any of this stuff. I need to check it out. And um, he, and he was the guy that encouraged me to go to North Texas because that's where he went. Um, so yeah, that was a good time because there were all these guys living in town and you can, I just would call the musicians. you up and go, Hey, can I have, or do you have uh David Garbali, Baldi's phone number? And I would go take lessons from him for a while. And then, that's great, man. I even went wow. to Mark Craney's house. Remember Mark Craney?
0: I do. Yeah.
1: Um, I went Justin place, peace, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. He remember he had his. He was a lefty, so he had his drum kit set up left handed. Then he set up another drum kit for me, and I took a lesson from Wackerman. I think. Yeah. I transcribed, I transcribed like ship arriving too late to save a drowning witch, and I brought it to him. And I was like, "Is this right? Did I do this?" I have no idea. I just this is like improvisational. <laughs> you guys don't like play all these. <laughs>
0: uh, well, you so you just answered a so so you you are pretty good and probably still are a pretty good reader. I mean, you could read pretty well back then, having studied with all those great teachers and working out of these books.
1: It helped a lot. Yeah, I mean, I got really yeah. I got really into it. I mean, my, my goal back then when I was 16 was to play with this guy, you know, I wanted to play with Zappa. Yeah. I just was obsessed with Frank Zappa. You'd never know it by the records I played on. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's really, really cool. That's very insightful because I was going to ask you like, as a young drummer, who some of your influences were like, and you mentioned Stuart Copeland and probably Menu, Manu, I'm guessing came later, but you were probably into the police and.
1: Yeah, it was like all the usual suspects, you know, like at the time, like it was, in, you know, in the early 80s, I was into all the the great drummers. That, I mean, there were a lot of great drummers in popular music, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone from Phil Collins to Terry Bazio to, you know, Bill Bruford to
0: just... Neil all, Peart, probably.
1: Neil, of yeah. course, Neil Peart, yeah. Peart. Um, Bonham, I like classic rock guys. Um, I just loved all the, you know, yeah, usual stuff. I didn't get into jazz till so I went to college. I just didn't have any friends growing up that were into jazz, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, and then, and so it was, it was, you get the gig with Edie and like early 20s, right out of, you know, like basically a year or so out of high school. And, and you're, you know, you're playing in a band that's, that had to have helped develop what I what I look at, like, you know, your maturity, like you, you, you were playing so maturely for a younger drummer. Do you know what I mean? When I say that, like a lot of guys, I know when I was like in my early twenties, I just wanted to play a lot of drum fills. And I think it's a natural thing, especially for somebody like you, who obviously had tons of technique, have tons of technique, and I think the fact that you were able to and chose to just, I just think that's incredible, Matt. You know, I think a lot of younger drummers well, could learn from your example.
1: Well, thanks. But, it, you know, it wasn't just me. It was the guys in the band telling me to chill out because I used to. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Just, just play. Okay. Here's the verse and here's the chorus. Don't do a crazy film. Just don't do it. <laughs> I, you know, I was 20 years old. I, I was out of my mind i wanted to like throw down and play all the shit i liked you know and here were yeah. these songs that you know they just you know I, I don't know if you know this a lot of people think i played on the first record i did not play on the first record that was
0: I, I, chris whitten yeah i do yeah. know that yes and
1: so so they went and did the record came back and um the drummer you know quit he was you know pissed off obviously because um, the producer replaced him on the studio musician and uh, and the bass player Brad was my roommate. And he asked me if I wanted to audition. And so I did. And um and I joined the band. And but it, it took a while for them to like like chill me out because I was, you know, I wanted to play like five over two over seven, you know. <laughs> Displacing the snares and like you know, the <laughs> hard hated me. Just like give me the stank eye all the time. You know, just like what the hell are you doing, dude? Just chill out. But that's what you do yeah. when you're that age. I mean, that's yeah, right. I mean,
0: yeah, exactly. And that's why I. But that's why when I, you know, discovered you, you know, after the Ed Brickell gig and like in the early '90s, and you know, you were doing the uh, Saturday Night Live every week. And then you started up showing you started showing up in all these other records and you were this really fully formed, like mature studio player. And and you kind of answered that question just in, in in the conversation we were having when you said you moved to New York and, and decided you wanted to try to, because um, I wondered that, like, did you make a decision in your mind? Like, I want to try to be a session guy or did producers start calling you and saying, I heard you on this record. I, I had you do this. You know, I want you to do this record with me like that how you took that step.
1: Yeah. I consciously just wanted to be a part of records. Cause I just love the process of record making. I just love it. I love, you know, I engineer a lot. I just, you can't see this. This is my recording studio. I have a, a room in um, the sound city studios complex. Yeah. And, um, you know, I engineer everything here and I just love the whole process of it. I love um, learning and record drums are like m- my favorite thing to record. I think it's most engineers favorite thing to record. Cause it's just, there's so many possibilities with how to mic. So yeah, that was a conscious decision. I wanted to play with songwriters and on records and get into that whole world of record making. I just yeah. I think it's so fun. And um, it's so creative. It's, it's more um, interesting to me than just being in a band you know which i mean if you're in the right band you can do some really cool shit but bands are kind of like a self-contained unit of it's like a little box you know uh-huh. at least that's what i i've always thought but um yeah and so i just really wanted to you know i, I put myself out there trying to like tell people yeah if you ever have anything you want to record or just let me know i want to come and do it you know and at the time I was just like, well, just buy me lunch or something. You know, I just wanted to learn because you don't learn recording. I mean you 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 learn recording by doing it. You know, you have to listen back to yourself. You gotta you know, sometimes you don't wanna play as loud as you do live when you're recording, you know. So. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of variables going on and, and it's just yeah. a, um I love it. So that that conscious decision for sure.
0: Yeah. And you got comfortable with it pretty quick, I'll bet. I'll bet you really God, I, you know, like I, I'll give you an example. And I was telling my wife, who says hello, by the way, Kelly Firth, my, and and um, she was very excited that you were going to be here with me today. And, um, but I remember um, hearing the the Wallflowers tune, One Headlight, back when it was on the radio and 25 years ago, turns out. And I, and I knew it was you. I remember hearing that it was you on the record and totally digging it, totally digging what you played. And I, and so today I was thinking, I'm going to listen to that. I haven't listened to that song in a while, like, really listened. I'll hear it on the radio, but I put it on today and I thought, if I remember correctly, Matt plays just bass drum, snare drum, hi hat pretty much the whole time. I don't think there's really many fills in it. And sure enough, and I, you know, I encourage everybody at home watching this right now to check that song out because it is indeed, although I do hear one tom tom, and this is the geek in me, there's a, a fill at like, Three minutes fifty six seconds, where you do like a little and you hit just a, a quarter note in the tom tom. But the beauty of it, Matt, is you don't hit one cymbal crash, right? I mean, throughout the song, it's all hi hat and it's all these little syncopated fills, and it's it's so tasty. I just, I, it just, it's it's like what Jim, you know, like it reminds me of the stuff that Keltner does, like this really tasty, memorable stuff. And then today, I was getting my hair cut. And it was playing on the Spotify channel that my hairdresser had. And I said, Hey, I'm going to have this drummer on my podcast later today. She's like, really? She was very impressed.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks.
0: Yeah. Anyway.
1: Well, you know how that came about? I mean, we were playing the song as a song that had, you know, the sections defined by, you know, a crash going into the chorus. And, yeah. um, and it was just the concept that, um, He came from, I mean it's not it's not uncommon to um not play a crash. I mean, there's plenty of examples, you know. Sure. There's tons, I mean there's tons of records where there's no crash symbol. But I remember at the time the bass player Greg and I were really into that Tom Petty record, um, Wildflowers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know that song You Don't Know How It Feels? Yes. He doesn't he doesn't hit a crash at all on that song either. And um I was like, how about if I just don't hit a crash like Steve Ferroni? And um, it just kind of worked.
0: It worked. Yeah.
1: It, it, you know, it's just a concept. It's more like, a, it's just like, okay, let's take away some things that you would normally do and see if that helps the song. Because the song just wasn't feeling right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So sometimes you have to subtract instead of add more shit, you know? Um, yeah. At least. That's what we tried. And luckily it worked out.
0: So, and, and I I had made a note to ask you about that. If that was something that like the producer had suggested, or maybe Jacob, maybe the songwriter or someone had said, you know, which, which obviously happens all the time in the studio where they're, you know, someone, you know, makes a suggestion to the drummer or to somebody in the band, but that was your, that was your idea. That was your, you and the bass players.
1: Yeah. I was just, I just thought, you know, I, I told Greg the bass player, I was like, "Hey, how about if we just try something like where I just don't hit a crash like that Tom Petty song?" And we tried it, and we're like, "Hey, that that works. Let's just
0: that's it. great, yeah."
1: And I was I remember like T Bone Burnett produced that record, and I remember telling him, I was like, "Man, if you miss the crashes, we can just overdub them," you know? And he's like, "No, I just leave it alone, just leave it alone." Because I was going to overdub Wait. like some fills and crashes going into the sections. Um. But he was like, ah, just
0: just leave it like that. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah, and it's it's just such a great groove, and it, it everything just works perfectly. I'm going to read you a couple of comments. Um, oh, Jimmy Keegan's watching. You you know Jimmy Keegan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's already been discussed, but please talk about Mark Endert and the Fiona Apple production.
1: Yeah. Well like on the first record
0: i guess it would be the first record and i'd made a note of criminal too just yeah just as as an example of just some ridiculous playing but but yeah maybe maybe you could just talk about that for a second Mm
1: -hmm. well that record was also a process of uh you know we would play it you know we'd play it live and it just didn't seem special you know like the the producer at the time Uh, really wanted it to be unique and different. And we just kept trying stuff. And um, on that record, on those sessions, um, was John Bryan, who's become a well-known producer, soundtrack artist, Mm. or composer. Um, And he brought... I remember he, at the time, he had just moved to L.A. and whenever he would show up for a session, his cartage would bring, like, drums... And microphones and like clothes because he wasn't living anywhere. (laughs) Clothes would show up and boxes of microphones, just like weird, just like random. He had so many great drums. I ended up using a lot of his drums. I was like, wow, you have like Radio King drums and man. So he had a box of weird old microphones, and I I thought, well, let's make it sound like a because at the time this was like probably 90 94 or something
0: yeah i think so yeah
1: and that was when people were kind of getting getting into like drum loops on songs and there was like this whole like lo-fi like incorporating like hip hop breakbeat sensibilities into a pop song you know like Porous head at the time or like some of those british productions like massive attack yeah and, and so um i thought well how about if we just mic the drums with this shitty mic that is just all mid range. And I'll just play it, play it down. Maybe it'll sound like a drum loop or maybe we could chop it up later or something and make it a loop. And, and we did it and Mark Ender the engineer put this, it's like an American mic. It's called a D 22. You've probably seen them like in videos. Like they're very weird looking. They're like, it's a metal looking thing. looks very sci-fi, but he just put it in front <laughs> of the kit, like kind of right. In front of the kick drum kind of like right there. can see the kick drum. Um and then just compressed it and eq'd it and then I think there was a kick drum mic and that was the drum sound. And so I just heard that sound in my headphones and just played to it. And that was an example of um like when you hear the sound of it, you can't just play drums like you would normally play drums. You have to kind of be light on the cymbals because Mm-hmm. compression and the sound of the mic is so mid-rangey and harsh that you got to really like maybe even tape up the cymbals and like muffle stuff down. So, it, cause it is, you know, if you, if you compress the mic, it just draws everything into it. So if you have ringy toms or anything on the kit that's rattling, it'll come out. So, yeah. And then we just did a couple takes like that and we're like, wow, that's, that works. Let's have a song yeah. that. And, and that,
0: and that was that was yeah.
1: I think there's a sound of like a like a click or something. I think it's like an MPC click that's part of the drum performance that I think Mark Ender had in the control room, and we just use that as like the click track. But he just kept mm. in the um, the song as part of it. It's almost like a cowbell kind of sound.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's the, and 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 to your point, that ha- hearing that in your in your headphones like makes you play differently is what you're saying right yeah it's
1: like like the same concept of like if you're a guitar player and you're playing with uh just plugged straight into an amp or versus plugged into like an effects pedal you're going to play differently you know like if it's like the effects pedal of drums you know having yeah compression or distortion or whatever it is if you hear it you're going to play differently based on hearing you
0: know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to read you just a quick comment, um, from Dave Aberzies again, who, uh, and he'd mentioned this to me in a, in a message that, uh, his first DW experience was on your kit in Seattle during his Pearl Jam audition.
1: Oh yeah. I left, and, it, there. Uh, I left it there. Cause he was, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he said they became my dream drums because of the experience of that kit. So yeah, you, you, Helped a young drummer's dream come true. Matt Chamberlain. Yep, that's what
1: you did. I remember when I unpacked the cases, when I got him back, he had, he left me some funny messages or the guys did or something. I remember there were like some pieces of paper with like pictures and things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great.
1: Maybe that was- Oh, I want to read- I can't remember, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to read your message from Lalo uh, Davila, who says uh, that he and Julie say hello.
1: Oh, Hey. Yeah, Lala was there at North Texas for my short stint.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Part of my deal with going to that college was I had to be in drumline, and that was intense. Yeah, I played snare drum, and we that actually that year we went to the percussive arts thing, and we won first place. No kidding, in the drumline competition. Ask Lala has like a a VHS of that performance. I've been looking for that for forever because it was such an insane. You know how those drum lines? Oh
0: man, yeah. And you you played snare drum?
1: Yeah, and we man, yeah. we rehearsed like almost every night, and like it was insane. Every weekend, every you know, it sounded
0: good. That's that's like serious playing when when you're in that condition. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. Lalo said, "Send me a dress. I will send it to you." He has it. So yeah, he has it. Yeah, I want to see that. So I
1: want to see my mullet. I probably have like a serious mullet.
0: <laughs> it was the eighties. It's it's forgiven. I
1: think I, I think I had a ring for that.
0: Like, <laughs> I I remember the the video of like an eighty nine. I guess it would have been the Edie Brickell video. Video where we were talking about. What I am and and you looked like you were about. I mean, you have such a baby face anyway, but you looked like you were about twelve. I remember thinking you were like probably 16 years old, you know? And I think you had, you had really long hair, maybe a ponytail in that.
1: Does that Most likely, right? yeah. 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 Traditional grip. During the era of, of hair farming, it was like a, <laughs> you know, you have your uh, historic era, <laughs> paleolithic era, and then you have your hair farming era. Like the 80, 82 and 95. <laughs> uh, when hair I can't. was a fun <laughs>
0: <laughs> i i can't comment on that because i have my own my own skeletons in my own closet when it comes to that stuff so
1: and plus nobody had yeah. to go get a haircut i mean if you are <laughs> have like a girlfriend that had like you know flippers actually i need to get a haircut right now but you
0: know yeah. it looks good I, could, I can send you to my girl she's yeah in <laughs> situate mass she's really good
1: hook me up man hook me i up.
0: will um Man, I, this is, this is hilarious. And as, just as I knew it would be, this is great. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple other things and we're sort of like touching on this too. Like you have such a great sound and, and you've already sort of answered it being that you have this, you know, you're an engineer and, and you've, you know, you really, I know you really focus on sound. And was that something that, I think it's safe to say it's evolved over time. I mean, it, you've always played like bigger crashes, all right? That's sort of been like a Matt Chamberlain kind of trademark. Once you started recording, that kind of became your sound. Maybe. Maybe? No?
1: I, I know like back in the 90s, um, I, I didn't really pay attention to like the size of the crashes. I just call them, <laughs> I think. <laughs> endorsed by sabian and i was like can i have a couple crash symbols and they just said they're like what do, you, what do you want like a 16 or 17 because that was like the size like that was considered yeah a symbol, right? yep. um it wasn't until later that i got into larger i think i mean i never okay it, yeah it's weird because i mean now i'm so i'm such a gear geek but back then i just was happy to just get whatever i could get and it would work somehow i don't know like you know what I mean? Like ignorance is bliss kind of thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that makes, no, it makes perfect sense. It does. It does. Because I think, as you say, you've, you evolved as a drummer and as a, you know, your ears and everything else and you, and you, be, I think what you're saying is that you started to really pay attention to getting the sound you wanted. You would mean using a, maybe a bigger crash symbol or a thinner crash symbol yeah. or, or just you know, bigger contact
1: bass. with people that have different instruments that you could try out. Like, oh, wow, a 20-inch crash cymbal. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know, like, we're, I just never was around people, like other drummers that I knew that were playing in clubs. We all just kind of had what we had. I don't, nobody really cared, really, as long as it didn't crack, you know, because yeah, had to, like, have some money for food, too, and drumsticks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but once yeah. you're recording, is- yeah, obviously you're like, wow, okay, the microphone's picking up this and the way it mixes with the other instruments and there's some some like i'm just rediscovering 2002s this week like they just sent me some and i've been recording stuff with them and they're such a cool symbol like yeah i always thought they were just really bright and um just like too bright but but if you play them really soft with like smaller sticks you know and they just sound beautiful like you know they kind of float above stuff above other mm-hmm. instruments. you know, especially if you have like a lot of guitars or synths, you just have that beautiful um, kind of high end that just floats above stuff.
0: Are you playing thin, thin crashes, 2002s?
1: It just changes all the time. I'm, I'm, well, the 2002s are just standard, but, but they're bigger. They're like a 20 of a 20 yeah. and a 24 inch ride.
0: And they say crash. They don't have like a, a weight designation on them.
1: You're big crash
0: yeah because i i i picked up some mm-hmm, fins mm-hmm, and i totally agree mm-hmm, with what you're saying as far as like the the they respond quicker and the any sort of harsh element I mean I, I don't record like you do but i mean just for live use they really speak quickly and kind of get out of the way and but have a, a nice frequency that kind of rises above a lot of the noise that yeah, my bandmates I, make
1: it's nice you don't have to like Especially like the rides, like, you know, with the 2002s or like the um, like the uh, Essentials, the ones that Vinny helped design.
0: Yeah, the 602s. The
1: new yeah. formulas, they're nice because you don't have to like hit them so hard. You can just kind of play them and they just sit above stuff in a really cool way. Remember, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've always been in the world of really um, dark kind of symbols, you know, I have for a while. And I still love that, you know, all the master stuff that Peisty makes is, you know, totally fills that need for sure. But, um, it's fun to have a company where they're, they have extreme sound palettes, you know, like the signature stuff too, like the Stuart Copeland hi-hats, these little 12 inch mm. crispy, like they almost sound electronic. I just, I just love all that kind of stuff because you can use it in a track and, um, you know, just gives you a different Sonic perspective, you know.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I was just going to say. So we were talking about this offline um, when you came to visit Zildjian, and I'm trying to remember when that was, Matt. It had to be over 20 years ago, or maybe about that 20 early 2000s.
1: Early 2000s, yeah. That was when John Bryan and I went out there. He he brought his bag of old K's. Yeah, he was like, "Can you these exact symbols? I need double." <laughs> I remember
0: <laughs> and I do. And that was I you know, I didn't know who John was at the time and I, I did later realize like, you know, he he's he you know, he's obviously a huge deal now, but he was certainly a big deal then and you were you were like so cool and so chill. But what I remembered and, and is that you kind of um really initiated something that helped Zildjian, I think, in the long run, because you asked to have some thinner a zildjians made some thinner. Do you remember this? You said, Can I get some because I said, you know, we can we can fool around with some K's, and you said, Man, what I'd really like to get is some some older sounding A's, like some thinner A symbols for recording. Yeah. So you remember that? we laid some thinner for you, and and I was kind of blown away at how good they sounded. I didn't think the A's weren't really sounding good in those days. They were too heavy mm-hmm. and and we all knew that. And just making them thinner you had these great and that kind of planted a seed for a couple of years later zildjian sort of making a change to that to that line to make them thinner so oh cool they owe you a big thanks
1: yeah man i can give them my address they can send me uh, a whatever, uh, whatever they want Any check
0: <laughs> retroactive <laughs> i think
1: gold I think bars as well <laughs>
0: Um, Uh, yeah
1: but but that was because of john bryan he he was such a a collector of vintage symbols and obviously is a a recording genius so i learned a lot from him um and just having you know just being around his collection of instruments i was like wow these old symbols are really thin and they record so beautifully but they still have high end you know, like some of these old A's from like the fifties and sixties are really thin, but they have a beautiful high end to them. You know what yes, I mean?
0: Yes, that exactly over, right. Over yeah. time
1: they mellowed out. I mean, you know, a symbol that's like 70 years old is going to sound different than a newer lathed one. It takes a while, but um, yeah, but that, that like opened my, my eyes to the world of symbols just being around John and just being around yeah. old K's and stuff like that. But now like old K's are so unattainable, <laughs> you know, like yeah. even if you had the money, it's like, really, I don't think I'm going to spend $3,000 on a right symbol. And plus all the, and plus, I think all the really good K's from like the fifties and sixties, people probably played them because they sounded so good and they're all cracked or they're, they, I was just, yeah. and, and a lot yeah. of them just didn't sound good. Right. I mean, a lot of those old K's,
0: they were clunky. Yeah, it
1: was yeah, hit or miss. So like, like all the ones that are left over are the clunky ones, probably because nobody played them and cracked them. <laughs> I,
0: I, you know, I hate to say this to to hurt my friends at Maxwell's drum shop that have a a pretty sizable collection, but I've picked through them, and there's a couple of good ones that they have, but they're huge money. Yeah. But to your point, Matt, I think most of the really good ones have either been. In, they're in someone's collection or they're just no longer around. Yeah, yeah. You know, Steve Gad cracked them. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, he's <laughs> good ones, man. I remember. Yeah. You know, but I think we're like in the golden era of just like if, if you want a symbol that sounds like those old Ks, there's plenty of new yeah. new options from everybody, you know. So
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You can find it. So Lalo just told me he emailed me at my Zildjian email. That has been defunct for ten years. Lalo, I will send you my my current email um, if it's okay, Matt. I'll give him yours, and he can just send that picture to you. Yeah, great. He says oh, yeah. he's,
1: he has he, the he has the a picture or a video.
0: He said I just emailed you a picture to your oh, Zildjian email. Okay, but maybe maybe he has a video too. Oh
1: man, I want to see the video. I'd love to yeah, see. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, where as we we've been going for a little while now. I don't want to keep you all day here, but the process now. So when you get called to do a record now, is it typically, and you do a lot, I'm sure a lot of remote recording and, and do you do mostly stuff out of your studio or do you do still a fair amount in studio, other studios?
1: You know, like when the pandemic hit, like everybody, I was stuck in my studio or, yeah. or your room or whatever and so I just re- I ended up doing a ton of records where I just did everything myself and got really really into it because there was nothing else to do obviously during the pandemic so um I feel like I I got better as an engineer and just being able to like do it all myself because I had to and um and so like I have like a whole thing now like uh, like you can't see it on this side I have like a whole percussion overdub um world and then then I have a drum kit set up and then off over here I have like another kind of minimally mic drum kit that could be more like a little jazz kit or percussion more percussion stuff so uh, now I feel almost a little bit more creative like I'm I feel more creative having more options around so sometimes I tell people let's just do it at my studio because I can do more and then in my control room I'm I'm really into like modular synths and, and drum machines and stuff. So I have a lot of options for doing hybrid acoustic electronic things. You know, if, if somebody wants to get a little more, um, experimental. So I, I, I mean, I love doing it here and, and it's a different thing than just going to studio, which there's still sessions like that where, you know, the cartridge brings my drum kit in and we play. You know, and I just play drums. I don't have to engineer, which is really nice now. To you know, I just play drums. And Then we order lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's so laughs> um, I don't have to sit there and make playlists and Pro Tools and like <laughs> A's is right on those mics, or you know, it's uh, yeah. But both are both are going on now, and I think now that we've been through the pandemic, people are realizing that you can get really great results remotely too. You know.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And when you do your your remote recording, so you you do a you do a, a session in your home studio, are you sending them fully formed tracks, like mixed, or are you sending stems, or are you sending like you're 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 giving them like a a finished drum sound?
1: Usually, what I do is Oof. um, uh, like they'll send me the songs, and I'll I'll do my first take of what I think. Uh, you know of of my first impression of the song um and then i'll make a little rough mix and email it to him and say am i going down the right road like with sounds and approach like is this something you were thinking and you know if it's not then we get on the phone talk about it um if it is then i'll just continue doing takes and i'll just add more stuff you know add some percussion or i'll try you know i'll just throw stuff at the song and see if because, you know, in Pro Tools, they can use it or not, obviously. So, yeah. you know, if I'm hearing something, I can try it and just have it there and they can choose to use it or not. So, um, yeah, that's that's usually the process. Um, I had done some sessions during the pandemic where I used this plugin, where they give a stereo uh, feed of what I'm hearing via the internet. I sent them a, a link. It's called Audio Movers. And then we get on the iPad. And so they're looking at me. Um, you know, they would mute their side of the iPad while I'm playing. And then when I'm done with wow. the take, they unmute the iPad and we can talk. And it, it yeah. was funny because it was just like being in the studio to me. Because usually I'm in a in a room somewhere apart from the control room. Yeah. I'm like, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it felt like I was in a normal studio. But you know, it was with people like in New York or like I did a Tori Amos record and they're in, um, Cornwall, England. Um, and we would do that, do it like that. And, um, so there, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to do records. You know, if you're going to do that kind of record, I mean, obviously some people want to get in the room together and and play and that whole thing, which is way better than sitting around your studio by yourself. (laughs) <laughs> talk to yourself. I talk to myself a lot.
0: I do too. No. I I uh, I'm the only one that listens to me, so let's yeah, it's, I'm kind of forced into it. But um so in those situations they're, they're like maybe sending you demos or or um whether or maybe even in both situations I guess if you're like if you're going to do a Tori Amos record or Brandy Carlisle you have an idea what the what the structure of the tune is before you recorded obviously it's not like it's being written in the studio so to speak
1: yeah if they're going to send me stuff like for instance like with tori she you know we've done so many records together for so many years that um she trusts that um if she just sends me a piano and a vocal to like a click track or a loop that i'll get enough information to do something and it's you know with her it's like super wide open it could be anything you know and she's Yeah. yeah. But obviously the song is arranged in a way so I just learn the form and just try to make the song work with the drums or the percussion or whatever you know whatever ideas I have and then I just send her little rough mixes of what I'm doing and she'll she'll get back to me and go yeah or no or <laughs>
0: <laughs> but probably of more uh, yeah more often than not I'm sure it's a it's a yeah on the first go right I'll bet given your history and
1: like sometimes there's options like you know, there's some songs where I'm like, well, um, here's more of like an electronic acoustic kind of vibe. And then here's more of just acoustic drums doing a performance of the song. You know, there were some of those kind of options. He always went for the performance over like the more produced, you know, here's a drum loop and a drum machine. And, you know, she just wanted me playing drums, which was, which was awesome. But it's fun for me to just try both ways because you never know you know you never know what could happen because you know with songs like that somebody just sends you a piano vocal it can go anywhere you know because you don't even know what is on it after the fact i don't you know i didn't know if there was going to be layers of guitars or an orchestra or it was just piano and drums and percussion but um yeah it was all based on you know whatever she used was based on what she was hearing her song being, so I just kind of went along with, you know, I just trust that she'll pick the right thing. It's her music. Yeah. I'm just innocent bystander. I'm just here to help if I can. (laughs) (laughs) No,
0: you know, I, i made a note, I mean, stating the obvious, you're, you're a song drummer, you know, to me, the true meaning of a song drummer, you know, serving the song. Um, You know, we talked about Jim Keltner. We, I think a guy's like, you know, the late great Hal Blaine, you know, and we talked about Earl Palmer and offline. I got, not to
1: throw you off topic.
0: No, I just have
1: a Hal Blaine story for you, but I'll let you, I don't want to throw you off your your No, no, and I was
0: going to, I was going to mention like a Dave Maddox too, who who sent a very nice comment saying, you know, like, you know, you're one of the best and, and uh, yeah. But let's, I want to hear the Hal Blaine story.
1: Hal Blaine story.
0: Yes, got to hear it.
1: Me up and he was like, Hey, I have Don Bennett. I mean, I have uh Hal Blaine's um A set of symbols. I guess he got it from Ooh. Hal's, family. and he was wanting to sell it, but he was like, Hey, I want to send these to you before I sell them, just so you can play them, which was so nice of him. Yeah. And so he sent and I had Hal Blaine's symbols. I had his again, like 15-inch high hats Uh it was like a 21-inch ride, uh 20 inch symbol that somebody wrote phallic symbol on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Hal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh. I, I think that was it. Might have been something else, but so anyways, I had his set of symbols on my kit wow. for that whole. And um, I was so excited. I was like, man, I can't, I can't believe it. So I called Jim Keltner up because I knew that he got into doing sessions because of Hal. And I was like, yeah, man, I have yeah. the Hal's cymbal here. Um, I'll just drop them by and you can have them for a while and play them. Because he he told me some story about how in like 1961, Keltner sat down behind Hal's kit and played his ride cymbal and said it was like the best sounding ride cymbal he'd ever played. Like he still remembers it to this day as like the best sounding. Right. And so I was like, man, I think I have the ride. You know, you should check it out. Wow. And he, he had it for a couple of weeks and I was like, so... What do you think? He's like, huh? Ah, he might have had another set of symbols. I don't. I don't know. If... <laughs> <laughs> you know mics are. Mics pick up symbols. You know, and we're trying to figure it out. Like, because it, it said how number one. Like all the symbols had his name, and it said number one on it. Like his number. Oh. But maybe he broke some symbols. But they're all like fifties, fifties A's. Yeah, like thin, fifteen-inch A's, a twenty-one or twenty-two from
0: the 50s um yeah yeah so and i i thought he had a 17 inch crash too maybe maybe. that might have broken though yeah and um and was one one, a rivet was the was the other like 20 did it have a rivet in it maybe or rivets maybe sizzles
1: it had
0: holes in it yeah it might okay so yeah you know the song um by the association never my love Mm mm-hmm he used it on that song. If you listen, like, the, the opening, do, 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 do. Uh,
1: that's a great, I love yeah, it.
0: Yeah, and check that out. It's, it's, that's that symbol. It's just magical. I
1: have a picture of those symbols. Let me see if I can see what they were. Uh,
0: but what a cool thing to just, to for Don to say that, to, hey, I'm, you know.
1: It was so nice of him. I was like, are you yeah. sure? I mean, those are, like, priceless. If they get lost, um, I don't know. But I got them back to him. He has them yeah they're he great. still has them. I don't think he sold them. Those would be something for like the Rock Hall of Fame or like some you know, somewhere where people can like see them. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I saw Don. Don came out here to Boston, um, came to my house a couple of months ago. He was out this way to do some work for Aerosmith. And uh, we had dinner at this local restaurant and I hadn't seen him in a while. And he's such a great guy. We got to hang and And I'm, I know your name came up because I said, I want to have Matt. And I think I said, I think I still have all his numbers and stuff. And before I reached out to you after the Grammys, I think I verified. I said, I still have this number for Matt. And he said, yep, that's still good. And so, and then I saw that a text thread that we had anyway. So. Um, oh, cool. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've known Don. I mean. From my years of living in Seattle, he was like the guy that always had the cool vintage drums lying around. And I go out there and I'd be like, okay, I'm not gonna buy anything. And then I end up buying <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> He <laughs> had you just where he wanted you. <laughs> yeah.
1: I yeah. I, had, I bought like I remember when Elvin Jones passed away, he was um helping Elvin's wife sell a lot of Elvin's stuff. And yeah, I picked yeah. up a, a pair of sticks and some brushes, and the Elvin oh, great. A gas machine front bass drum head from him. Yeah, it's like oh, man, so
0: that's that's so cool, Matt. That, so you have that? You have that bass drum head? That oh, that's that's awesome.
1: Has the Camco logo on it, and yeah, Elvin- Yep. And here, I'll show it to you right now. I'll grab it.
0: That's man.
1: <laughs> Hold on a second. Ta-da.
0: There it is. Yeah. Look at that.
1: Yeah. What a force of nature he was.
0: Oh man, was he ever? Yeah.
1: I got to meet him once. You know, Michael Shreve in Seattle yes. was good buds with him. He was like interviewing him for something. I think he was gonna do like a documentary or something on him. But um he had a but you know, jazz, jazz alley in Seattle. Yes.
0: Yep. I saw him there Elvin, once. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Elvin was playing and, and Shreve arranged for all the local Seattle drummers to go before the show and just meet him. And I was so nervous. Wow. Was like, oh my God, it's Elvin Jones. And so I, I, I met him and I was like, can I just ask you one question? Like, what was your first recording session? Like, like how, like, what do you remember? Like, did they mic all of, Like, what did they do? And he was just like, man, they just had one mic in the room. That was it.
0: That was it. <laughs> it was
1: wow. <laughs> <mic>. <laughs> He's like, and then he went off. He was like, nowadays, you know. Yeah. Yeah. To play for the engineer and all, all this stuff. And I was like, that's classic. That's exactly yeah. true. I mean, what happened? Exactly <laughs> true. If you
0: would ask him, Matt, if you would ask him, Elvin, can you give me any tips on, on, uh, on sight reading, on reading music? His answer would be. Get a light for your music stand. <laughs> is,
1: that, is that actually what he said to somebody?
0: He he said that he said that somewhere. Someone said, Do you have any tips on on reading? And he said, Yes. You know, and he had that that voice. He said, you know, he'd hesitate to go, yes. Get a light for your music stand. <laughs> oh man. I that guy was, you know, a force of nature, just like you said. That's the perfect Description. He was, a beautiful human,
1: yeah, through and he through. Looked so yeah. happy when he played. He was so joyful.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, there's a funny like Elvin connection in Seattle because, uh, you know, Greg Keplinger. Greg, sure. Yeah. Um, he's a good bud, and Keplinger saw Elvin play with Coltrane when they recorded live in Seattle. Wow. And um, he remembers it being like like going to see a punk rock show or something. He said the the velocity of sound coming. I mean, it, there was no PA system, you know, it was just them in a room playing. Yeah, he said it yeah. was insane, like the, you know, the energy. I
0: believe it. Yeah, because yeah. Elvin played even in his 70s with such, you know, not like power and intensity, not, he didn't bash obviously, but just he had this, this, you know, intensity the way he played, you know, and, and like Billy Cobham, you know, you you could just volume and muscle and yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. those guys are in yeah. tune with some other thing, some other force out there.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate, we've been going a long time and I so appreciate your time and doing this Matt. I, we could go, longer and longer i want to just read a couple of quick comments uh for some from some friends aaron comis Mm -hmm. wanted me to ask you i don't know if he was able to join the broadcast he might he was going to try but he might not be here uh but he's wanted me to ask you about late night um gig at guadalajara's late night hang after the gig at guadalajara's mexican restaurant munchies back in the dallas deep elm days and um just good times he wanted me to mention that to you. Good old, good old Aaron. Yeah.
1: That and, was cool. uh, you know, Aaron lived in Dallas during that time. He lived down the street from me.
0: Yeah. I remember him telling me that. Yeah. And yeah, he was me <laughs> around the same age ish. I think. Yeah. 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 Good drummers came out of that part of the world during that time,
1: man. Like Earl Harvin, you know, Earl Harvin. He was-
0: I, I don't know him. I, I know the name. Yeah. He
1: ended up moving to Berlin, but, um, he played, and uh, with seal and air yes. and um, yeah, he's just an amazing drummer from the yeah. Dallas area.
0: Yeah. That's great. And um, yeah, Brett, Brett Zwear just said um, gifted musician with a great groove, ask him about playing with Sunray and the tambourine machine he used on mistress. Never seen one with a pedal. I probably should ask you that earlier in the, in the show, but um.
1: Oh, sun oh yeah that was actually across the parking lot here that was uh matt wallace this producer was doing the series of getting musicians together to just play and he'd video it and um that guy sunray that thing that's on youtube that performance is the first time i ever heard those songs i that's why i had that look on my face i'm just kind of going uh, <laughs> is this the next section coming up or like you know because literally <laughs> had never heard that music before until we started playing it i just, i was looking at him like is this where we're stopping? Are we going to keep going? But I have this tambourine machine um, that has a pedal, like a it's, it's a DW uh, cable hat high hat pedal attached to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hewer uh, modified for me. You know Chris Hewer. The yep. From Guru, that mod-
0: guy in LA. Yeah. Yeah. He drum guru exactly. Yeah.
1: He, he always he can do crazy shit, and I figured he he'd be the man for the job. But he he just hooked it up. I have it right here. I can show it to you if you want to geek out on it.
0: Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If if it's not too much trouble to. Let
1: me me just grab it. Okay. So, and the tambourine machine, which is nice. So um he hooked up this cable hat to it.
0: Look at that.
1: So there's like a little attachment here so it just goes down but um the the pedal does it.
0: I dig. Yeah. And it looks like it feels pretty good too, right? The action's pretty yeah. I got it made pretty smooth.
1: I got it made for like a for a Tori Amos tour and we, um, and you know, the, the instrument has like all these arms on it, you know, it's kind of hard to see.
0: Oh yeah, I can see. Yep.
1: And so, yep. and so for the, that. Tour, yeah. after the tour, um, I, I had it out on tour and we had to like get, different people to weld shit back together. Cause it was falling apart. Um, but I was getting into like taking pictures of people's faces and like photocopying their face onto a piece of paper and sticking their little heads up here. So <laughs> little arms like, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> was... yeah. Uh, uh,
0: you gotta have fun on the road, you know, <laughs>
1: like a little shiva kind of thing.
0: (laughs) That's great. Oh man. Oh, Matt, man, this has been awesome, man. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today.
1: Thanks, man. It was a good hang. I feel like you're here. I feel like we're just, I do
0: too. Yeah, I know. I know. And I was going to, you know, you're mentioning camp I got a vintage kit that I just got a couple, about a month or so ago now. And, uh, it has that same logo head that Elvin had on his. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I think um like uh,
1: was that like the seventies Camco when he played Camco? It was in the seventies, right? Because he was doing Gretsch in the sixties.
0: Yeah, I think that Camco was the version that Tama ended up um making. Tama had bought the name Camco, which they still own, and DW bought all the um machinery and the designs for the lugs and all that stuff. So Ah uh, right. how that yeah
1: lug for a second right like between yeah yeah
0: exactly exactly they had a an, like a weird looking half-rounded lug the the tama version of camco right right um, so, so and elvin was one of their guys for a little while while they had them yeah
1: yeah yeah those old campos sound great i found a little 13 16 22 and a 24 like a 60s um Oaklawn kit that i love love it wow wow um you know we have to
0: i'm looking for other
1: toms for it so if anybody out there has like a 12 inch beat up tom or a 18 inch floor tom let me know
0: (laughs) okay you know what matt i'm serious when we when we finish the show i'm going to connect you with a guy named bob saul who got me this kit and got me the snare drum the snare drums in oakland the rest of the kit's a chanute which was the, the you know right after that 71 um He'll find you what you're looking for. I'm telling you, he can. He's the man. Bob's the man. He's the Camco
1: Hunter. He can find. He's it. the
0: cat. I have him on my phone as Camco expert. Whenever he calls me, it I, it comes up.
1: Wow. So, okay. Yeah, man. I would love to find uh, extra Tom or two for this kid.
0: All right. He's he's the guy, the Camco Whisperer. I'm going <laughs> to connect you guys.
1: <laughs> awesome. Um,
0: and, and I'd love to have you to do something in the future. I do. I'm going to start this new series called track talk where I just talk. We talk about like one song and um, the first one is going to be Monday. I'm going to have Stan Lynch come on and talk about stop dragging my heart around the Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks tune. And um, so down the road, I'd love to have you back either for this or for a track talk episode. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, I'm always into talking about drones anytime. I know.
0: I love that about you. All right, well, hang hang tight, Matt. I'm going to end the broadcast and I'll come right back to you in the room. But big hand for Matt, Chamberlain, everybody. Thank you so much for watching.